afternoon or good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming early here uh, for this presentation. I'd like to introduce from the state Smart Transportation Initiative, our presenters here, Chris McCahill and Mary Ebling. Thanks, and thanks for making it out. Um, it's great to be here. Um, we are asked to come and talk today about urban boulevards. Um, so I'm here with my colleague, Mary Ebling, um, and we work at the State Smart Transportation Initiative, which is at the UW. Uh, basically what we do is work um, with state DOTs all around the country, um, sharing best practices um, and offering some technical assistance. So this information all comes, we don't, don't actually work in Wisconsin at all. We don't work with this Wisconsin DOT. Um, so this information all comes from um, outside the state. Um, and um, hope, I, might, I think hopefully I was just trying to offer um, some information on what is a boulevard, or urban boulevard exactly, um, what it can offer, how do you do one, um, and what to worry about or not worry about. Um, focusing mainly on Stoughton Road, but I know there's probably lots of um, opportunities to, to sort of think about urban boulevards in the city. So just to kick it off, so we're on the same page, what is an urban boulevard? So we're talking about two pieces, actually, the road and the land around the road. So in terms of the road, it's a divided arterial that's walkable and low speed. Um, it carries all kinds of uh, movements, so through traffic, local traffic, bikes, pedestrians, basically everything. Um, it still serves as the main route for goods and emergency vehicles and traffic. Um, and we're talking about at-grade crossings, so not like the, the buried or low road with the crossings over or anything. Everything's at the same level. Uh, in terms of land, um, an urban boulevard has the buildings facing the road right up to the sidewalk. Um, usually like two stories or more, so it sort of creates a space uh, where, the, where the corridor is. Um, and the parking would be on the street or in back. So um, to really get an urban boulevard, we're not talking about the like one-story buildings that are sort of set back with a parking lot in front. Um, the land is sort of a piece of the puzzle. Um, so I think what we're really interested in is, is the possibility of turning what is a highway into an urban boulevard, right? Um, so that means changing the road and changing the land. Um, there's precedent for doing both. Um, this is uh, the inner loop in Rochester, New York, um, where they, this is an aerial from just a few years ago. Um, but as of today, that freeway is pretty much gone. I think this project might be just about done. They removed the freeway, brought everything up to, to grade level, um, they're able to reconnect the city um, across what used to be sort of a, um, a pretty major barrier. Um, there's also sort of a precedent for um, how to change the land use, right? This is from uh, the neighborhood plan that was developed a few years back. Uh, and the plan talks about how you could phase the land uses um, towards more of what I was talking about. Um, the buildings up against the road, multi-story buildings. You see some building examples here. Um, so we kind of have the pieces in place to be able to move towards something like this. Uh, and this is courtesy of the Florida Department of Transportation. Uh, they're really interested in building complete streets, so they put together this thing that sort of shows um, what that transition would look like as you move from a highway um, to what they call complete street or an urban boulevard. Um, one of the reasons they put this together is because they said we're happy to do street design like this, um, but we also want to make sure that the land use around it supports uh, that type of road, otherwise um, it's not really worth our investment. So just sort of a visual example here. 
So I was really just going to focus on three things today that I think are probably of interest to folks and, and important things to touch on. Uh, one is uh, accessibility, the second is safety, and the third is traffic. So accessibility. Um, this is a key part of, of what an urban boulevard does because normally when we talk about, we measure the performance of a road, we're really talking about mobility usually. Uh, so we can take a look at the road and say how, what's the volume and the speed of the traffic that's moving on it. So a, a road that's doing well is moving large volumes of traffic um, at a good speed without um, too much delay. Uh, we work in a lot of, of um, measuring system performance in a different way, which is accessibility. Um, this is basically the ease of reaching destinations. Since um, taking a snapshot of how a road is performing doesn't really tell us everything we need to know about how easy it is to get from where from point A to point B. So that's what accessibility is. Uh, and you can think about accessibility for someone who maybe the red line there is someone who's traveling the full length of Stoughton Road here, um, in which case how fast that road is moving does affect their accessibility. It affects how much time it takes them to reach their destination, especially because they're traveling the whole length here. Uh, you can also think of as accessibility for someone who has to go across Stoughton Road. Um, so that's the orangish one in the middle, um, in which case certain things about the road could um, pose barriers, especially if they're walking or biking, right? So their accessibility, so we can measure how accessibility is from one side of the road to the other. Um, you can also think about someone, the yellow one on the bottom, who is going from point A to point B using Stoughton Road for a little bit of their trip, um, in which case the speed on the road does matter, but if their trip's only five minutes anyway, um, that speed doesn't really matter a whole lot. That's the concept of accessibility. Um, we're working with tools to actually be able to measure accessibility. So this is showing accessibility, walking accessibility throughout Madison, sort of like if you're familiar with WalkScore, where you can um, put in an address and it will tell you how easily you can walk to a bunch of different things, uh, except we're using software that lets us do this in-house. So we can measure walk accessibility, bike, transit, car, um, and we can decide what destinations are important to be able to reach. So jobs, schools, um, uh, grocery stores, parks. Um, and you can see sort of the pattern of accessibility, high accessibility downtown in the isthmus, um, moderate accessibility in Monona, along Monona Road there, uh, and pretty poor accessibility all along Stoughton Road, um, even in some of the neighborhoods that bought right up against it. Um, and that's partly because of the way things are connected or not connected, right? The service roads aren't really connected to the neighborhoods behind them. So on Urban Boulevard, one of the aims would be to improve accessibility. Um, and we could actually go in with a tool like this um, and model the new, a new urban boulevard and see how it would change accessibility, how it might improve accessibility in those neighborhoods. Um, accessibility is also important because it's linked to um, particular outcomes like land value, uh, transportation spending, right? So as accessibility goes up, um, uh, economic productivity tends to go up, land values go up, quality of life goes up, um, and people have to drive, can drive less because they're closer to things. So um, total travel goes down, transportation spending goes down. Um, and actually, Virginia DOT, which is one of our um, more involved partners, uses accessibility measures just like this to prioritize projects. So every big project that goes through Virginia um, has to get rated on accessibility and see how well the project improves accessibility. So that's accessibility. Um, and I'll, I'll take a bunch of questions at the end, but I'll um, just try and get through this first. Uh, second is safety. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because the way we think about safety for a freeway is fundamentally different than the way we think about safety for an urban boulevard. 
Uh, when we talk about a safe freeway, we're talking about uniform speeds, right? Everybody's going about the same speed, so you don't have people bump, bumping into each other. Uh, limited access, right? Not a lot of crossings uh, because we don't want a lot of conflict points, especially when people are going at high speeds. Um, limited access can also mean, you know, in some cases, safety for bikes and pedestrians means keeping them off the road, right? Uh, and this idea of forgiving design, right? So for uh, basically for a freeway, what we do is we make the lanes um, pretty big. Uh, we make the shoulders pretty big so that people have a little bit of wiggle room just in case, you know, they're not completely paying attention. Um, and we keep stuff away from the edges of the road so that they don't crash into anything if they lose control. An urban boulevard is a completely different concept. So the safety comes from the fact that it's lower speed. Um, you can see here that at a high speed, you have a very narrow tunnel of vision. Um, so you can't see everything that's going around you quite as easily. Um, as speed goes down, you can then begin to see your surroundings um, much easier. Uh, you have better reaction time. Uh, you can stop much faster. Um, and if you do hit something, it's a much less severe crash. Um, so at these very high speeds, one out of uh, 10 people might survive being hit. And um, at a low speed, nine out of 10 people survive. So it's a fundamentally different way of thinking about the safety of a road. Um, this is a little uh, technical and jargony, but um, the design standards for urban boulevards also suggest this, this low speed concept. Um, so what we really want to do is set a target speed for the road. And for an urban, urban boulevard, it's usually 25 to 35 miles an hour. Um, and this is important. So the WISDOT um, Facilities Development Manual says, selection of a design speed is extremely important because it determines curvature, sight distance, clear zone, and other features. Basically what this is saying is, if you're designing the road for a high speed, then you need to have those wider lanes, you need to have big sweeping turns, curves, um, and you need to get stuff away from the edges of the roads. But once you say you're going to design for a lower speed, um, then you can bring those things, tighten those things in. Uh, the way WISTA and most agencies do things typically is to um, set a posted speed, the speed limit, based on observed traffic. So see how fast people are going and set the speed limits so that about 85 or 90 percent of them are going that speed. Then design for five miles an hour above that speed. So that's to give people that wiggle room that I talked about. Uh, the recommended practices for an urban boulevard say set the target speed equal to the posted speed equal to the design speed. So the concept is to bring everything in line for this lower speed environment. Um, this is a, a, some guidance that I'd recommend. Uh, it's from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Um, and it's designed, it's, um, it was thoroughly vetted by ITE, and it's designed to work in unison with most agencies' existing design manuals. Um, so a good resource to know about anyway. Uh, third is the traffic. So Stone Road currently carries around 50,000 vehicles per day. Um, the darker dot in the middle of the screen there is uh, the traffic north of Cottage Grove. The lighter blue dot is the traffic south of Buckeye. And I also showed the traffic on um, East Washington. Uh, that's that gray squiggly line. So Stone Road is currently carrying about the same traffic as East Wash at the Ahar River, just for reference. Um, traffic on East Wash has been about steady with some variation for about a decade. Uh, but you can see the forecasts for the road that came out of a needs assessment from Wistot a couple years back. Um, and you can see that the traffic volumes are currently um, below that forecast. Um, 
That's not um, unusual or surprising. In fact, um, USDOT uh, recently in a report to Congress said that states uh, tend to overestimate traffic growth. Um, there are lots of reasons for this that I could go into if anybody was interested. Large part of it is that they look at past trends and project those trends into the future without thinking about um, things like demographic shifts, um, economic shifts, energy costs, um, land use changes, and things like that. Um, we have more information about that because we wrote about it in our newsletter um, recently, if anybody wants to learn more. So in any case, reason to think that um, typical forecast might be a bit ambitious. So that tells us about how much traffic is on the road. We also could be interested in where the traffic's going and some more characteristics of the traffic. Um, you might, some of you might be familiar with the um, Beltline study um, where they used some really great stuff with Bluetooth sensors and aerial photographs to figure out where people were getting on and off the Beltline. Uh, we've been using a lot of GPS data recently with other states, um, and this is really neat because it tells us um, where the trip started and where the trip ended and then sort of what route they took. Uh, this data mostly comes from uh, cars with onboard GPS, like OnStar. So the data is collected anonymously and then aggregated. And then we can go in and ask a question like, uh, at those two points on Stoughton Road, A and B, um, tell us what we need to know about the traffic. So we can say, this red area, let's call that local traffic. Um, how, much of the, how many of the cars that use Stoughton Road there um, never even left that red area? Right? And so you can see at point A, it was 8% of all the traffic was within that red area, and at point B it was 5%. Um, this is real data. Um, we can also say, well, what's the distribution of all the trip lengths? So at each point you can see uh, 12 to 15% of the trips were under five miles, uh, five to 10 were, 30% uh, were five to 10 miles, 40% were 10 to 20, and the rest were um, more than 20 miles. So this tells us a lot about who's using the, the road that we wouldn't have known before. And then you can see there's a big distribution. It's lots of local traffic, medium-length traffic, long-range traffic. So sort of what a, an urban boulevard is meant to carry. Um, a freeway is meant to carry more long-distance travel. Um, the other thing is seeing those, uh, a large number of um, long trips is that if you did want to reduce the capacity of the road or at least not build more capacity, um, you could imagine people start to shift to I-90 for those longer trips. So, with the idea of making capacity smaller, um, is it possible? So, we can look to other examples where freeways have been turned into boulevards to understand what happens to the traffic um, when you do something like this. So, I'll take you to San Francisco in the late 80s. Um, this is a photo of the Embarcadero, which was a double-decker freeway. Um, there was talk about removing it. It was really controversial. Uh, and then uh, earthquake struck in 1989. So then they were forced to make a decision, do we re repair it or take it down? And they decided to take it down. So this is what it looks like now. Some of you may have seen this before. So it really opened up the waterfront. Um, it's a really vibrant area with people walking and biking and shopping now. Uh, so we can look at the traffic. Um, and this is from a study of um, colleagues of mine at the University of Connecticut, which I can share if anybody wants to see that. But traffic before on the old freeway was around 100,000 vehicles per day, so twice what Stoughton Road has. Um, you can see that it stayed open during construction. That's the red, the red bars. Um, but it carried about half uh, of that traffic during construction. And you can see some of the other roads, the parallel routes uh, in the city, 
um, traffic went up on those roads. So you can see the rest of the road starting to take on some of that traffic. Uh, then when the road was finished and finally opened, um, it, everything stayed about where it was. So the system had kind of equalized out. Another example um, just down the road from this one is the Central Freeway, also damaged in the earthquake. Um, it's now Octavia Boulevard. Again, it started by carrying 90,000 vehicles per day, so a lot more than Stoughton Road. Um, it was closed during construction, so it wasn't carrying any traffic. Um, and you can see that around that time, some of these other parallel routes with the red bars, traffic went up on those too, right? So they started to carry the traffic that was pushed off of the freeway. Uh, but then when the road opened again, um, traffic went up to about half of what it was before, maybe 50,000 cars. Um, and the traffic on those other roads went back down again um, to actually lower than it was before. So again, we see this really neat phenomenon with the, the street network sort, sort of handling the traffic um, organically. So um, I had another example of the Park East Freeway in Milwaukee, but for the sake of time, I skipped it. But what we really see here, so this is showing the volume capacity ratio. Basically what it means is up, if a bar is up in the red, it means the road is carrying as much as traffic as it can. It's full or above full. Um, and this is just a bunch of cities across the board. The dark blue line is the freeway that runs through the city. And you can see that consistently the freeways running through these cities are operating at capacity at the busiest time. Meanwhile, all the local streets, which are the light blue, uh, they're operating well below capacity, um, around 50% of capacity usually. Um, so we've got these big roads and cities that are operating completely full while the local roads are sort of have this extra capacity. Um, and we can see what happened in San Francisco when they changed the road. Remember, they reduced the capacity on the road, um, and they actually, the volume capacity ratio went down. So they were operating more efficiently uh, than the freeway had been, right? So a really bizarre phenomenon. Well, what we think is going on here is that urban freeways actually attract and funnel traffic, right? Uh, and you can kind of imagine this. If you have a, a city with a, a really connected grid street network and you plop down a big road across it, people are obviously going to flock to that to get across the city. They'll be able to get across the city faster, uh, and then it's going to fill up, right? Um, so this is, what, this is what we think we see happening, um, whereas connected street networks can distribute the traffic more evenly. Um, and the evidence that we have from these examples and a couple other examples are just as the, if you plop that road down, uh, when you pick it back up, um, that traffic spreads back out again. Uh, there might be some turmoil um, and anger at first, but um, the connected street networks tend to handle the traffic pretty well. Uh, so that's all the um, technical stuff I had. I just threw this in. This is the Stoughton Road area, um, 1940s, uh, just to point out that this was, uh, you know, a farmland area that evolved into this, right, um, a really busy community uh, built around Stoughton Road. So it's a really neat opportunity to think about, you know, what the next uh, phase of evolution could be. Um, and it's, it's nice to see that people are thinking about it. So um, that's all I have. I'm happy to answer questions. And uh, Mary also is sort of my, the local expert because she's been familiar with the local issues. Expert. Yes, uh, longer than I have, so. Thank you. We also have um, Yang Tao from Traffic Engineering here, if you have any questions for our city staff. Um, I have a, a couple, but I would like to hear what other questions people have. 
So um, one of the um, issues that came up in one of our committees was the tra tra truck traffic. There's a you know significant amount of industrial uh, uses around here and around Stoughton Road. That's the first question. So I'll maybe give you the other one after that. Yeah, so I would just say that um, the design guidelines that are out there for boulevards, you know, they're designed to be able to handle that traffic as well. And there's guidance. If, if you're talking about, I think, like delivery along the road, I mean, there's guidance for all of that. Um, I think I would actually point to that GPS data again, though, too. It's, it's worth keeping that in mind and reminding folks that there's new sources of data out there um, because you can actually separate out the truck traffic from the car traffic and learn, you know, how many of the trucks there are going the full distance and maybe could take a different route and how many are stopping locally and uh, lots of real opportunities there. Thank you. And then the second question I have has to do with the uh, infrastructure that's already been built there. Uh, my thinking would be that the time to convert some of the uh, interchanges to at-grade would, would be when those bridges reach the end of their usable life. It wouldn't make any sense at all to tear down the bridge when you just built at Cottage Grove Road, for example. But are there ways to retrofit those bridges to be able to carry bikes and uh, pedestrians or to better uh, be able to, for pedestrians to use the corridor, for example, in the places where we already have that built-up infrastructure. And I don't know if you have any examples or, or ideas, but I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, so retrofit is, is another. I think, so there's the design, design guidelines I showed from the Institute of Transportation Engineers, and there's also um, a lot of stuff coming out of NACTO, which is the National Association of City Transportation Officials. Um, and I think that latter one is probably the best resource to go to to figuring out how you fit bike lanes on existing, on existing roads um, and things like that. I think probably the stuff that I showed is more for thinking about um, complete redesign probably. Thank you. I think I'm on. I have a few questions. Mm -hmm. um, where you've got it outlined from the interstate up through Cottage Grove Road mm -hmm. to the east, that's my district. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a bunch of constituents work on the plan. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious about the following items. In your slide on volume capacity, mm -hmm where local roads have low volume capacity or lower, this wasn't Stoughton Road, but just in general, and the freeways are at capacity. So when you uh, do away with the freeway and come in with an urban boulevard, does overall capacity shift someplace or overall traffic shift someplace else, or do they really just shift on um, smaller roads? Because I can't imagine the neighbors would like a right. lot of traffic, mm -hmm. you know, going through their neighborhoods. Right. Um, so I don't know the answer to that because I don't think we've ever had, like, a, all the data to understand the t all the traffic and figure out did it, did it go down overall or did it just shift around, right? I think that was your question. Well, it was, but from the information that you gave us here – it would seem to me that a small percentage of the trips on Stoughton Road, it's like 8 to 10 percent, I thought, mm -hmm. um, were actually from 10 to 20 miles. Mm -hmm. 
And so that may shift up to the interstate, but the rest of it to bring volume down by default right. would have to shift to other roads. And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the east side of Madison, but there we're, we're very limited on north-south connections. Right, right. So um, a, a couple things there. Um, so one uh, idea that I had there in, in being able to understand the distribution of the trips is that, yeah, some of those longer ones – um, will shift off, uh, assuming you bring the capacity down. Mm-hmm. Um, and the road can still handers, handle some of those medium and local local trips. Um, but then also, um, I think, and I didn't show any of this, but probably part of this, there's a lot of things, and I know I've, he- I've heard this a lot, that like when you say, oh, the local roads can handle some extra traffic, and the, obviously the people living there don't want their roads handling extra traffic. Right? Well, and geographically, I mean, just how the roads are laid out in the east side, Mm-hmm. There, there aren't other north-south connections besides the interstate. Right. So the idea would be having that, the Stone Road, I think, focus on handling, still be the major north-south corridor. Um, and if there were areas where uh, there was concerns about putting cars on the local roads mm-hmm. and you didn't want to do that necessarily, um, there's some really neat like ways that you can make um, some of the local roads like less direct options for drivers so they wouldn't necessarily go through a neighborhood. Portland, Oregon does a lot of this. Um, and Mary, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Well, you want to come up here? Or? You need to go to the mic. That's right, we're on TV. Um, so, living on the east side, a block off of East Washington Avenue, I, I do know exactly what you're talking about, and what I experience is not, you're right, the north south routes. Um, between East Wash and Packers are definitely more limited, but the traffic does distribute on the different roads that go the different cross streets, the north-south streets, in an even enough way that the neighborhood I live in anyway is not that adversely affected. Um, so I would think with things like you were, you were just suggesting some traffic calming, that type of thing that will make it less appealing for a car to go through. And we already do some of that in Madison with the islands, and if the neighbors um, support it to a certain degree, I, think, I can't remember what the percentage is of neighbors who have to sign a petition for traffic calming. You can get speed right. tables and We're that kind of thing. With Those that. are really, really effective. Uh, so you know, some people don't like them because they're different, but they are really effective at slowing down the traffic that does disperse onto those roads mm-hmm. and discouraging the traffic. In my, in my experience, back on East Washington Avenue, if you don't want to deal with those roads. Uh, so that's that's maybe what I can offer for that. I'll I, just hang out yeah, here. I should also add that the examples I showed were like they reduced the capacity to like by, by half. Mm-hmm. Um, the design guidelines for the urban boulevards, um, they go up to, to like 50,000. They're, they're designed to handle up to 50,000. So um, East Washington does. Right. right. So we're, we're not talking about necessarily a giant loss in capacity, and you could still transform the road into more of an urban boulevard okay. style. Is it okay? I've got two more questions. Can I just add one thing? Absolutely. Um, your, there was an earlier question talking about areas like there was that massive project that happened at Cottageburg Road in Stoughton. Um, and there are strategies, as Chris mentioned, to try to incorporate multiple modes in those instances, but there's also the phasing that we talked about. So these projects phase over time. So it's kind of like the bike network that 
you know, we're pretty, you know, we're doing a really good job building it out, but it's, it's happened over time. And that's, that's what would happen for some of these spot areas that might be considered problems. Thank you. So um, I've talked to a lot of local businesses in the area, and when the DOT came out with their plan to sink the road, and before that, because that is a recommendation in the Stoughton Road Revitalization Plan that the council adopted to sink the road, um, businesses are totally against this because they will be bypassed. There's no, um, there'll be ways to get off the road, but the signage is very limited. Um, I think it's hotels, restaurants, and gas stations is the only thing you can sign for. Um, so they're, they're really against this. At the same time, they are against reducing the speed because um, the, the pushback that I've received is that truck traffic would need to go slower, slower and truck traffic going slow is not as profitable, right, or it limits their profit because they're not getting places as quickly. I was wondering um, if you've ran into that argument before. Uh, no, I haven't. And it's, I guess maybe that's, it seems interesting because it's, it's a concern about the businesses being able to serve, be, be served locally, mm -hmm. but then also a general business interest in trucks being able to move through the corridor mm -hmm. quickly, I think. Right. Right. Um, no, I haven't heard that one before. Okay. Uh, and I, think the third that, I think that it's, it's worth keeping in mind that um, we talked about speed going down on the road. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have a huge loss, added travel time going through the corridor. Um, you may lose, you'll, if your speed goes down, uh, you may lose a minute or two, you know, in that stretch of the road. Yeah. Um, but there's also opportunities for the road to operate more efficiently. So you may not lose as much time at long traffic lights and things like that, too. So um, that might be something to, to think about to address some of those concerns about. So economic development in this area of the city is important to me. And also what I hear from businesses along um, the corridor is that they, they're leaving. Because, right. <laughs> eyebrows up. Or they're not investing because they don't know what's happening to the road. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't back in the industrial district, but uh, facing the road. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to um, economic development where investments are made in urban boulevards. Or maybe that's something like that you don't look at. Type of thing or? I guess I want to make sure I understand the question. Um, so basically, are you asking, do we have any experience with if an urban boulevard is constructed, what the economic development opportunities are that result from that? Like what, what, what the city could expect to occur if that were to happen? Sure. Or, that, I, that would be a fine place I to just start. Look at all the big shiny silver buildings on East Wash right now. That's all I got to say. Um, that's economic development right there, converting that road into a usable facility for multiple modes, it's become vibrant and alive, and it's developing. Well, there's a lot more than that that's gone into East Washington, but... But you know what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. So and then um, just a, a different question altogether. What does this do to a carbon emissions? Because it, let's say that it stays the same, because there are, I mean, where you live is further west than a lot of the, 
the land that I'm talking about. And there are currently, other than Stoughton Road and the interstate, you don't get north to south, right? It's really broken up through there. And so if if the volume remains the same, because I don't see how it's, unless they, the 8% shift to the interstate, that bring it down, um, if the volume remains the same, cars are going slower. They're on the road for a longer period of time. And I don't know if there's any um, data with that in gro- going faster. You know what I mean, the, the give and take? Because I know if you drive faster, it's you emit more emissions, I guess, into the, the car does, into the air. But at the same time, you're on the road longer. Yeah. So this is the, it's, it's a common sort of confusion and trade-off is that um, – Yes, but by making the cars be able to move without stopping and be, operate at their most efficient speed, they are burning less carbon. Um, but there's also this sort of big picture trade-off, which is that um, that's basically encouraging the driving and making driving the number one choice for everybody, right? As opposed to an urban boulevard where uh, many people can then maybe choose, uh, they can you know, go out and do some shopping and stuff without ever getting in their car. Um, so it's a trade-off there in terms of how efficient are the cars that are on the road versus um, how easily are people able to get around uh, without ever getting in a car um, or traveling shorter distances overall, right? Because uh, people who maybe used to drive up um, further to do shopping, the boulevards would then be there's a closer destination for them. So, okay. Well, yeah. thank you for yeah. your time. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was um, target speed equals posted speed equals design speed. Um, and my question is, is that a commonly used approach um, in cities? And then I would ask our traffic engineer who's here um, whether that's the approach that we use in general in Madison. So Yeah. I'll, I'll let you take that, but um, target speed is language that is now showing up in most of the, the sort of new design guides. So the one that I showed, um, I mentioned NACTO talks about design speed. Um, I could point to a few. The city of Chicago's Complete Streets Guide talks about target speed. I think I said design speed before. Um, so, yes, it is g- gaining in popularity. Um, I don't know what your experience is. So, so you're saying that that is something that the target speed equals posted speed equals design speed is something that hasn't been particularly used but is becoming more Right. And actually where, where it's been used a lot is not in new design um, necessarily, but mm-hmm. in retrofitting and this concept of traffic calming. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we recognize that there's speeding on the road, um, so we set a target speed and figure out what we can do through design to mm-hmm. get um, mm-hmm. traffic to hit our target speed. So that sort of thing, too. Okay. Did you want to add anything? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, also, I want to point out that uh, the city engineer, Rob Phillips, is also here. He can also add on um, if he wants to. Um, yeah, there's some... Uh, um, guidelines and documents, uh, you know, talking about uh, uh, the cities should design their streets um, of target speed limits rather than, you know, um, uh, rather than the speed limit. Um, so that's, uh, you know, s- some cities uh, has been using that for some roadways, but I don't think that's uh, right, at least right now, that's, uh, you know, a common practice. 
because you know when, when we are going to engineering school, um, as I've also been taught that uh, you know there should be some kind of forgiveness over there uh, for safety purpose. Um, I think we uh, for city medicine, especially for the major roadways, uh, we give a little bit leeway uh, for speed. We design for a little bit higher speed just to make sure uh, if someone operates in error, uh, we have a safety margin over there trying to reduce uh, traffic crashes and the severity of crashes when it does happen. Um, but uh, I also want to point out that, you know, for, for urban settings, there, there are lots of uh, uh, restrictions in terms of a uh, uh, right-of-way. So a lot of times the roadway are really tight. So at certain locations, uh, it's not possible for us to design a very fast, uh, uh, for a fast, faster speed. So, some, so we, we do use, uh, you know, um, speed, speed limit as a design speed sometimes, but uh, uh, not quite often, and not, definitely not always. So, uh, so uh, I've just got to follow up on that. Am I understanding you correctly, then, that you're saying that we design our roadways for faster speeds than what the posted is with the thought that that makes them safer? That's correct for most cases because uh, uh, human beings are still operating the vehicles and the human beings make a lot of errors. Uh, in the United States uh, in 2016, there are 40,000 traffic crashes, uh, fatalities, um, and uh, over 90% of those are due to human error. They're either driving inattentively uh, or you know, doing something else or make a wrong, wrong, wrong decision. So, um, so with that, that, that level of uh, uh, human error, if you're not providing um, a certain accommodations for them, you know, for, for the people who does uh, make an error when driving, um, you know, that, that, that consequence can be pretty bad. So, so um, it, my understanding is that if, cars are going at slower speeds that the um, result of human error is less catastrophic than at higher speeds. So I guess it doesn't make sense to me to design for faster speeds than what we want people to be going um, in the interest of safety. We should almost be designing for slower speeds than what we want them to go for if we want increased safety? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the, the argument can uh, go both ways. I, I definitely can see that. But I think our approach would be, uh, you know, for the main geographical features, like, you know, the turning radius, mm -hmm. radius uh, we try to be a little bit more generous. Mm -hmm. uh, just in case somebody makes an error, we don't want them to get uh, killed or seriously injured. But at the meantime, we use a lot of other features, like traffic calming, to coming down traffic in other ways at a spot that's not a very dangerous. So sometimes even, uh, you know, with the markings, for example, to make the roadway looks narrower, just change the feeling of the street mm. and uh, make better, you know, crosswalk markings uh, to create a feeling that uh, there will be lots of pedestrians here and also use a, a commonly used like shallow markings for bicycles and so to, to let drivers know that there's nothing going on, you better be careful, watch out for things. So in that way, they will be, you know, they have a feeling of a, 
of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm driving a urban street, so I should uh, be careful, I should drive slow. Uh, typically that works. But uh, again, you know, when it comes to a, a, a turning point, uh, if you uh, don't leave a little bit margin for error over there, uh, that will probably increase uh, the death rate if a crash happens. Okay, thank you, Yang. Thank you. Uh, I also want to add, um, you know, with uh, uh, the driverless cars becomes uh, a reality, you know, in the near future, and uh, more and more people, more and more people using that uh, technology. Uh, this can this can change because that will take the driver out of the equation, and so the the designers don't have to worry about uh, human errors uh, as much as today. So that will give us a lot of flexibility um, in designing a street. We can probably, at that time, we can probably design a street uh, according to a speed limit. And, uh, you know, the cars will be programmed of driving at a speed limit. And uh, that can greatly uh, improve transportation safety. Thank you very much. Um, you said at the top of your presentation, uh, which is very interesting, that you did not work within the city of Madison. Did I hear that correctly? Yep. Um, but it, apparently you do work closely with our city engineering department. Is that What is that relationship? That um, Not particularly, actually. Um, we engage, we've been in some talks about this autonomous vehicle stuff a bit, um, but we regularly, most none of our, our formal work is, is in the city. Okay, interesting. And then the other question is that uh, could you provide a copy of your presentation for us? Because I definitely would like to yep. have one. Thank I, you. I'm just going to clarify. I mean, we, um, we do have, right now we are working on a project that is very small. The city's in, in, involved with uh, the, tra tra the transit center, TDM stuff. But typically, we aren't involved in Wisconsin or the, the city of Madison. We work with the city occasionally, but we're not intimately involved in working with them on a daily basis. Um, it's just what's happened. Um, I think so our, our original, um, uh, the way we, we work is um, primarily through state departments of transportation and mainly through the CEO of the state DOT. Um, so our, our main partners are state agencies where um, the, the CEO is interested in participating in our network, and that's how we share best practices and do technical assistance. Um, and also, but what Mary was talking about was we also have a grant um, through a funder uh, to study transportation demand management in the city, so we are working with the city on things like that, so that would be the nature of that. Thank you very much. Yeah. It wasn't quite a straight line. Yeah. So. Oh, hi. Um, I guess this is more uh, observation than uh, a question here. Um, it, it seemed that your data about uh, reductions in uh, highway use and the overflow to local streets are based on um, uh, situations where these were full. I don't know. I'm sure you haven't. A definition of it, but full freeways where people are going, like the Embarcadero, which I knew, and uh, uh, people are going 55 miles an hour, and there are designated exits and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly not Highway 51. Mm -hmm. um, so what I think we're talking about here is 
is potentially recreating something that's much closer to what actually exists now. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, there would be, I think, far less disruption. If it went from its current 45 to 35, I think it would be much less disruption than if it was, in fact, um, a freeway like uh, 9094 or something of that kind. So I think this is kind of not apples and oranges, but really something that's uh, a, a much different kind of beast. And what I think would have been the really major change is what um, uh, the DOT's uh, number two recommendation of the um, deep highway and so on. Uh, yeah, I think I agree. Um, when we there's a conversation nationally about the sort of highway to boulevard conversions and things like that, um, and with that as a starting point, uh, I think Stoughton Road is, is much more of a realistic like it's the concept of an urban boulevard is more of the way that it's functioning or meant to be functioning or thought of as functioning. So, yeah. Yep. Anything else? Anybody else uh, before we wrap up? Well, thank you for being Feel here. Feel free to and, reach uh, out anytime, and I'll find the best way to get share the stuff. So. Yeah. Sure. That should be easy. Yep. Yeah, please. Uh, there you go. Thank you, uh, Chris and, and uh, Mary, for being here. Um, I also want to point out that uh, um, Stoughton Road actually is uh, not under the city jurisdiction. It's uh, under the state uh, DOT jurisdiction. So, uh, so a lot of uh, you know um, issues about the conversion has to be coordinated with uh, state DOT. Um, I I do see a lot of benefits of uh, you know converting the freeway to urban boulevard. Definitely make the neighborhood more livable and improve improve the, the property values. Uh, for a sunny area, but there are also lots of challenges. Um, uh, actually, the, the state is doing a, a I-39, 94 study, and uh, they're thinking about uh, you know, expanding the capacity. Uh, one alternative is actually doing building another uh, freeway uh, parallel to uh, Student Road and I-39. Nine ninety four. That's uh, north. So, yeah, that's north south connector. But they just yeah, canceled the yeah, that's yeah. yeah. So that's one 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 of the yeah. CDRC, you know, they look at it, look, look at it. So there, there definitely there are different opinions, uh, you know, out there, and um, um, I do think there will be you know some diversion issues. Uh, we'll never reduce capacity on 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 major arteria. Um, you know, Monada Drive, for example. And the Maher Avenue, and uh, potentially, you know, have see more traffic uh, on the street. Um, so, so you know, that's something to keep in mind. Also, I just want to point out that uh, for for traffic coming, uh, the number is 60 percent. So, if uh, if uh, there is no major traffic diversion uh, anticipated, uh, we require 60 percent of the balance returned. To be supportive of a project, Thank you. Uh, but uh, if a major diversion required, we require the 60% of the ballots posted uh, being supportive of the project. 
Thank you. Did you have anything, Rob? No. Okay. Alright. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Say again. Oh yeah. I <laughs> <laughs>